Have you ever wanted to tell off someone else's kids? I think the main reason people feel so awkward telling off another person's kids is because they're worried that they're going to be criticised or that they're crossing some kind of line. Today on Feed, Play, Love, we're delving into some tricky ethical questions around kids. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. Children can bring up a number of ethical issues, particularly when those children are not your own. Like, when is it okay to tell off someone else's kids? And how much should you help your kid with their homework? I don't know the answers to these questions, so I've asked ethicist and resident philosopher at the ABC podcast, Short and Curly, onto the show. Matt Beard, welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Thank you so much for having me back. Let's start with that first question, and that is, when is it okay to tell off someone else's kids? So let me do the usual philosopher thing and tweak the question, because I think that we cheat ourselves a little bit if we assume that this is a, like, when or when is it not okay? Because we all know intuitively that actually the core question is in the how, what manner of telling off or criticizing or providing feedback to someone else's kids would be okay and what manner would not be okay. And so a lot of this comes down to like, what do we mean by telling off? If we mean shouting at and chastising someone else's kids, that's probably not okay, but it's also probably not okay when we do that to our own kids. It's just that there's not necessarily anyone else who has the authority to criticize us for doing it. But when we tell off someone else's kids in a manner that's inappropriate, well, then we do make ourselves, we open ourselves up to criticism from the people who do have authority to advocate for their kids, namely that kid's parents. So for me, the question is more about how should we conduct ourselves around other people's kids and in what ways might that be different to the way in which we conduct ourselves around our own kids when it comes to behaviour management. And some of this has to do with whose job it is and whose responsibility it is to provide that feedback and who else is around. And some of it has got to do with just the nature of the feedback that we provide and our relationship with that child. So I guess the point is to say that this is less about a script or an algorithm that tells us when it's okay and when it's not okay. Like it's okay when someone's going to get hurt And it's not okay when, you know, there's nothing bad happening. Like, it's not about those simple binaries. Mm. It's about us exercising our judgment in the context of what's actually happening. Is there a way to do it that is ethically consistent for everyone? You know, we all have different opinions. So, for example, I don't like yelling. I think that's inappropriate, no matter what the circumstance. But then someone else might say, oh, the way you're saying that or the way you're telling it to the child is passive aggressive and that's not what I think is right. So is it even possible to come to a place where you're addressing that behaviour in an appropriate way? Look, I think that we need to redefine what we mean by appropriate. If what we mean by appropriate is perfect and to the approval of everyone who might possibly witness this, to every person who might possibly exist, then no, that's not possible. But that's not what we mean by appropriate. What we mean by appropriate should be something more like, was our response proportionate to what's going on? 
And was it reasonable for us to be the one to respond given who else was present in that situation? I could be the most um, zen and calm emotion coach to a child that is not my own in a playground situation and still be acting really inappropriately because their parent is right there and it's (laughs) my role to step in. Equally, I could be, you know, the only person who is around as an adult trying to stop something bad from happening but do it in a way that is wildly disproportionate and has really adverse consequences um, on the kid or even if it doesn't, is just a crappy way to behave. So it's about both of those things, the appropriateness of us intervening and then the way in which we intervene. And I think that those two categories, there's a lot of room for debate and judgment within that. But I would say that appropriateness is about those two things rather than, you know, some idea of perfection or no one being upset or getting their feelings hurt. Mm. Okay, let's move on to another one. And I should mention that these um, propositions I'm putting to you were all put to me by real-life adults who struggle with these things. Um, What if your kid is staying at someone else's house? Can you say to the adults of that house (laughs) that you have certain expectations in terms of things like um, what your children watch on telly, what they eat? or what they hear. So in that, I'm thinking of movies that might be M plus eating junk food or hearing stuff like swearing if the parents swear. I think the answer to this is again, like, yes, but how, and to what extent, if you hand your, um, you know, the family, a recipe list and say, these are the six recipes and you can choose from one of these, what you're going to cook to my child for my child. And the reason for that isn't because your child has significant medical needs and requirements, then look, you're probably being a bit unreasonable. Um, but it's, it's less about when we think about these things and when we think about parenting and families and all of these kinds of things, we're talking about relationships, right? And when we're talking about relationships and interdependent relationships in all of the different forms that they come in, we can't take a what is within my rights to do kind of approach. It doesn't get us very far. So if you're thinking along the lines of like, is it within my parental rights to stipulate that my child only watches PG movies and all the rest? Well, look, legally, yeah, probably. You know, is it within your rights? Yeah, probably. Do you seem like a bit of an asshole when you do it? Yeah, probably. <laughs> like, you know, it's about the way in which we we talk these things through. And again, it's about what grounds that conversation. It is vastly different to talk to another parent and say, hey, I expect that my child isn't shown any scary movies if he's going to stay at your house. That is hugely different to saying, hey, look, you should know that my son really struggles to sleep if he sees something that's scary. So if you're thinking of doing a movie, like, do you want to just mention it to me first and I'll let you know whether I think that that's something that's going to freak him out or not. So the tone of that and what you're doing in doing that is you're, you're stopping it from seeming antagonistic. Oftentimes when we get into rights-based discussions, like is it within my rights to do this? Am I allowed to do this? We're pitting ourselves against someone else. But if we think relationally, if we think, okay, well, actually for the next 24 hours, your family comes into my tent as part of the caregiving unit 
for my child. And so we need to be a team around this. And so I'm going to talk to you like a teammate. And I'm not going to talk to you as though I am the captain of this ship. I'm going to talk to you as though we've got to work together around this. I have information that will be helpful for you. You have proximity that's going to be helpful for me in continuing to take care of my kid. So how are we going to work together around this? Suddenly, you're having the same conversation in a really different way. And so, you know, oftentimes we think about questions of ethics as though they're like, you know, um, strategic, large-scale questions. What am I allowed to do? What, what are the boundaries of my appropriate behavior? More often than not, it's about tactics. It's about the practicality of like, how do we actually engage with the other person? How do we talk to our kid's teacher or whatever the situation might be in a way that doesn't frame things in the same way as a you versus me or an I know best or, you know, if you get this wrong, there's going to be consequences for you. Which, um, which does lead me into a question about grandparents. So I have watched different uh, families have different rule for, rules for their kids and then drop their kids off with their grandparents and then proceed to get very upset when their parents give their kids ice cream or let's say they don't like them having too much sugar and then the grandparents dose them up on lollies before they come home. And that seems to cause some really big arguments or upset. And I'm wondering if you would would use the same approach in that situation to those parents who are getting really upset that their grandparents gave their kid their first ice cream. Yeah, look, I mean, this is a really vexing one. I imagine every one of your listeners can think of a situation that's made them want to tear their hair out, whether they're grandparents or whether they're parents. Um, this is the reason why this is tricky is because there is no script that we get handed when we become parents or grandparents that tells us, you know, what our role and obligations are and, you know, what the limits of that is. It is worked out in a very kind of organic and emergent way. And oftentimes we are bringing our own kind of assumed scripts to that. So every grandparent... Um, well, just about every grandparent has once been a parent before that, and they're going to bring their ideas about parenting. And so, so often, you know, I experienced this, you know, when I would want to early, early on with small kids, you want to do the big handover and the big like pre-briefing <laughs> before your parents babysit your kids for the first few times, right? And they're sort of like, look, we've got this. We've raised, in my case, like my parents had raised six kids. So <laughs> they feel like they've got it down pat. And I think to the grandparents, as much experience as you unquestionably have, you haven't raised this child, mm. okay? And so as much experience as you have with children generally, there is insight into this child that you don't have. The same goes for sleepovers and, and parents. is like, you know, you've all got five-year-olds, but you don't have this five-year-old. And so understanding, like with a little bit of humility, the limits of your knowledge and the limits of your ability helps you to be receptive in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, equally, you know, on the other hand, we need to also recognize as parents that there are limits to our agency, there are limits to our control, and that's a good thing. You know, it's a really good thing for our kids to be raised by a village it's a really good thing for their resilience. It's a really good thing for them to be able to adapt to a world that, guess what, has more than their nuclear family in it. For them to recognise that there are different ways of living, there are different ways of being in the world, and they get to witness that in a really intimate way 
when other adults take care of them. So I think that we've got to recognise the value of there being some difference within that and also recognise that when we hand someone over, our child over to a grandparent, we're not and ideally shouldn't be handing them over to a third parent. We're handing them over to a grandparent who is able to provide our kids with a kind of care that usually we're not. We can't always be the super lavish, over-the-top, indulgent caregiver because we have to be all the other things as well. And yet we all remember loving being pampered and cared for by our grandparents. And we probably remember our parents bitching and moaning that we'd had too much dessert <laughs> on the way home. Like, these things can be reframed in a different way. However, I think it's also really, really important when we're having these conversations for us to actually try to surface a little bit of what is going on. These discussions are always an iceberg. There's so much more under the surface in terms of expectations about what kind of a grandparent do our parents want to be? What kind of a parent do we want to be? Um, to what extent do our, do our parents understand that taking on the role of grandparent means that they aren't this child's parent? Because the other challenge is just as real, right? Where we hand over our children and they are more disciplined by their grandparents because our parents assume parental responsibility. They might not have said so, but they think that maybe we're not parenting in quite the way that they would like us to parent their grandchild. Yeah. And so they decide to step into the void. <laughs> and so we have to accept not only like that there is some agency when we hand someone over to be cared for, one of our children, but also that there are limits to our agency around these things. Um, and if those roles get confused, it's not good for the relationships and it's not good for the child either. So final point on this, because I know I've talked a lot about this, humility and curiosity are just like the chef's kiss combo in all of these conversations. If we are humble and recognise that there's stuff that we don't know and that we can't do everything ourselves, then we start to see the value in what other caregivers are going to contribute and equally, if we're curious, say we're a grandparent and we're curious, we might go, okay, fine. I get that you don't like me using the word naughty or you don't like me, you know, um, using uh, punishment or bribes as a behavioral strategy. Okay, that seems weird to me. Instead of being like, that's just nonsense. I parented for 20 years and that's what I did and it was fine. If we're curious and go, tell me more about that. Like, tell me why the thinking about how we should discipline children has changed because I've been out of this game for a while and this is what we did and it seemed to work really well, then suddenly instead of it being like, again, me as a parent rocks up to my parents' place, says, here's my child, here's the manual on how to parent my child, um, I'll come and get them in six hours, thank you very much, which feels very transactional. <laughs> suddenly you are bringing these people into your tent and you're going, hey, there's this kid that we all love and care about. And some of the things that we think that we need to do in order to love and care for this kid really well, I talk to them in these ways. And when they express these kinds of emotions, respond in these ways. You know, and suddenly it becomes less about I know everything and your job is to follow. And it becomes more about we have a shared goal here, namely the well-being of this child. And here's what we know, here's what we've learned, 
And let's talk about that. Tell me what you've seen. Tell me what you know. Tell me what you've learned. And if we both can engage in that with a bit of humility, a bit of curiosity, admit that it's uncomfortable, especially for grandparents, because every every parenting decision that a grandparent um, doesn't like is implicitly a criticism of their parenting. That's the way that it must feel, right? Yeah. We're not going to raise our kids the way that you raised us. Um, and if we can go, okay, well, maybe that's because things have changed, maybe because there's there's new information, you know, if we can accept that every one of us in some ways parents fallibly, doesn't parent perfectly, then we see grandparenting as an opportunity to learn what we could do better and pass that on to another generation. So I, I think that those mindsets are really important around how we navigate this. How about this one? At what age should you take kids to church or should you always give them a choice? And I think that must lead to instead of should you always give them a choice or should you wait until they're old enough to choose? Like, okay, so I I was raised a Catholic, you know, I was baptised, I went to church for the first 22, 23 years of my life. I no longer go to church. My kids aren't baptised. So cards on the table, that's my situation. Um, I, I think that this question often comes from a place of, um, okay, religious traditions often share particular messages about what it means to live a good life. They make claims about the way that the world is, you know, that it was created by a God and that we have to respond in some way to the fact that this God exists. And so it's kind of teaching our kids in a certain way. And people are hesitant around that because they think that, well, if we take our children too soon, then we're brainwashing them in some way and that that's wrong. And so we should wait and let them think for themselves. I think firstly, that understates what it means to take a child to church because the church is also a community and it's a tradition and it's a set of rituals within a family. And every family, atheist, religious, you know, cultural, white bread, plain family, you will all have rituals and traditions that you bring your children into before they have rationally determined for themselves that they are sent to participating in this practice. You know, most of us will you know, give our kids presents at Christmas time. And we won't sit down and tell them about, you know, that originally this was a pagan winter solstice, which was then appropriated by the Christian church. And, you know, these are all of the X, Y, and Zs around it before we let our kids participate in that community process and practice. So we like to single out church as the one that seems like it's brainwashing. And maybe there are good reasons for that because they do make very strong claims on kids, on their identities at a time that they're vulnerable. But let's be honest, we are all blooding our kids into rituals and traditions and practices before they are rationally choosing them for themselves. So if it's good for the goose, it's got to be good for the gander. And I just don't think that, that that's a model to say, well, we need to let kids decide for themselves first before they've even tried something, before they've even participated in something to know whether they'll like it or not. Imagine if we did that with vegetables. You know? <laughs> like, we, we, there is a sense in which we learn experientially as well, right? And the idea of this rational person who evaluates evidence, you know, like a scientist and then decides what they're going to do 
it's kind of a myth. It's not the way that humans make decisions. It's not the way that our identity is formed. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that there is an age. I, I do think that we need to create within those rituals and traditions the continual opportunity for critical evaluation and questioning. Of course, I'm going to say that, like I teach kids ethics, but I don't think that the solution or the way to create critical reasoning is to first make a critical reasoner and then expose them to the world so that they can criticize it. We are always in the world and we need to teach and create space for critical reasoning, for agency, for independence and for reflection within the world that our kids find themselves in not kind of creating some kind of classroom environment and then sending them out into the world once they're ready. Mm. Speaking of classrooms, thank you for that segue. How much should we be helping our kids with their homework? <laughs> I think by now you know the first question I'm going to ask. What do we mean <laughs> what do we mean by help, right? Like what does help yep. actually mean? You know, if we are, you know, <laughs> And again, <laughs> ego comes into this as well, right? Like I can remember projects that my dad cared about way more than I did going <laughs> you know. Um, and I have no doubt that I will do the same thing for my kids going forward. I'll get super invested in perfecting something that they're very happy with. I think it's about going back to the core purpose. You know, the purpose of homework is to help to consolidate learning. And so to the extent that we are helping our children to learn, I think it's okay to help them with their homework. Does that mean that we must? No, not necessarily. Is there also an argument for saying that there's some resilience that can be developed if they have to work through something hard for themselves? Definitely. But I think that we shouldn't assume that either it's wrong to help or that it's always good to help. I think that we need to be looking at our child where they're at with the particular homework task that's in front of them. And we can ask ourselves a couple of questions. Would I be helping them to learn if I participated here? Am I competent enough? Do I know enough about this homework <laughs> that I won't get in the way of their learning? Because Excellent. That means I don't have to help at all, ever. And my kids are only in year two and year there's five. There's that scene in, um, I think it's The Incredibles 2, where like the dad superheroes at home, you know, trying to teach his son maths and they've got a new method for doing long division. And he's like, why did they change maths? Like math is math. <laughs> so he's trying to teach an outdated technique to his son, which arguably like that's not the way to help. No. And so what he does do then is he stays up all night and tries to learn the new technique so that he can then help his son with his homework. So what kind of help is actually helpful, I think becomes the central question. And the other question is, if our kids are struggling, and this is so much bigger than homework, right? Like if our kids are struggling, it doesn't necessarily mean that they need help. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are they ready for the kind of struggle that they're facing right now? And sometimes they will be. And so it's okay to let them struggle with that. And it might not be that they're struggling with the content. It might be that they're struggling with time management. It might be that they're struggling with motivation, those might be their challenges. But if they're ready for that struggle, then sometimes it's okay to let them struggle. Um, but if they are just needing to learn something and they're not able to learn it, I, I think that it's absolutely okay to, to get involved, to get completely involved, to spend all of the time with them so that they hand in their homework and it looks really good when you know um, that 
they wouldn't have completed it at all were it not for the two hours that you put into it the night before. Because the point of it isn't that they're able to do it on their own. The point of it is that they've learnt a bit more than they would have otherwise. Um, Look, this is the final question. Is it okay for parents to tell their kids white lies if it helps the child feel better? I'm so glad you left this for last because I have unpopular opinions about lying to kids. Um, <laughs> oh no, you don't believe in Santa Claus. No, I I don't believe in it. I don't believe in telling Santa Claus as though Santa Claus was true. I firmly believe in the story of Santa, and we play the story of Santa in our house every Christmas. But our kids know, even though sometimes they choose to forget, our kids know that Santa is a story. Okay. It's a story that we all choose to play a part in. It's a story that we are all involved in um, and that we kind of celebrate and enjoy and make believe together, but they don't believe. Well, they have been told explicitly that Santa is not real in the same way that unicorns aren't real and fairies aren't real. So again, like I'm going to ask about white lies, like who are we really trying to protect with a white lie? Because so often we say that we're trying to protect someone else's feelings, but actually what we're doing is we are trying to protect ourselves from the discomfort of sitting through, you know, a a hard hard conversation or a conversation that we don't feel like we're prepared for with our kids. Um, So really simple examples of this are like, you know, if a pet dies, what happened to the pet? Did they run away? Did they disappear? Have they gone to a really nice farm somewhere? Or did they just die? And if we choose to tell a white lie, because that's better for the kids, that makes them feel better, is it that it makes them feel better or is it that it makes us feel better because we don't have to sit with a really hard conversation that's going to bring up really hard feelings in both ourselves and our kids? And does it actually serve our kids to tell that white lie or does it help them for them to actually engage with those kinds of truths that sometimes are hard and are difficult? And also, does it start to set a relationship that is based on truth and therefore is a trusting relationship. You know, the words trust and truth are not too far away from one another. If we are a house that values honesty, then we need to model that. And we need to model that at times when it's hard and we need to model that at times when it's easy. And I think that there are probably times when it's totally reasonable to tell a white lie. But I think that the person who has gotten into the habit of telling white lies is probably not the best person to judge when those rare (laughs) cases actually arise because, you know, it's like anything. Something that that makes our lives easier becomes more and more attractive and we get better and better at rationalising when it's okay to do it. And suddenly, you know, I, I think about screen time. Like when we first started showing our kids TV, it was like, you know, you can watch 20 minutes of a, of a documentary <laughs> and he'll do it with us sitting there to talk to him about it. And now it's like, hell yeah, you can watch another movie. We've got stuff to do. And we <laughs> rationalise every step along the way. And I think that so often, you know, things like um, like white lies can fall into a similar category. They are a tool and a strategy of our parenting that makes our lives easier, but they become a bit risky and potentially a bit addictive because of that. 
Matt, there's so much to think about in just that one conversation we've had. <laughs> Thank you so much for lending your ethical brand. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. That's Matt Beard. He's an ethicist and the resident philosopher at the ABC's podcast, Short and Curly. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love. If you did, please rate, review or favourite. That way you'll get all the new episodes, plus we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, email me at feedplaylove at listener.com. Bye for now.